Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and Happy New Year! 2024 begins with episode 377 and my conversation with the Director of Percussion Studies and Marching Activities at Bloomsburg University in Pennsylvania, percussionist, educator, band director, clinician, adjudicator, and very active person, Gifford Howarth. We'll get to him shortly. But first up, Happy New Year again. It's been a very active time these last few weeks, of which there were many reasons that I went ahead and did not post an episode in the in-between holiday season. Within these last couple weeks, I got to travel to Midwest Band Clinic in Chicago to catch up with a few folks from my various band and percussion worlds, including previous podcast guests Joshua Simons, Jen Jolly, Nathan Daughtry, Andrea Brown, Tammy Fisher, Francisco Perez, Bernard Long Jr., Tim Heath, and some former and current students and colleagues along the way. I got to see some great performances and clinics and represent the University of Missouri Band's program. It's good times. After a much-needed visit with family, it was then time to go with Marching Mizzou to the Cotton Bowl. It was two 14-hour bus rides to get there from Columbia, a practice at Flower Mound High School, a battle of the bands versus the Ohio State University Marching Band, which was a lot of fun and very well run, a pep rally inside Texas Rangers Stadium, one outside of the stadium, and then the game itself. The football team actually, finally, won a bowl game for the first time since I returned to work at the University of Missouri in 2017. And the Mizzou crowd were very well represented and very excited. But most importantly, the students were amazing. The Marching Mizzou crew had a lot of playing, particularly on game day, with those two separate pep rallies and an entire game day performance with pregame, halftime, and postgame, as well as playing throughout the entire game. Really a tremendous job all around by the students, staff, and faculty. And here we are in 2024, pretty close to getting ready for the start of the semester. But let's get back to our final two interviews from folks I chatted with who presented at PASIC 2023, starting with Gifford Howarth. As I mentioned to him and discuss in the interview, Giff and I met very briefly about 20 years ago or so when he came and did a clinic for students at Berwick High School in Pennsylvania. While I was working a summer camp there, I used to do regularly with my friend and former UNCG grad school percussion classmate, John and Keeney. It had been a while, but it was great getting to chat with him again. Giff has been incredibly active in his percussion career since the 1990s, not only as a performer, mostly on marimba, but as a band director and percussion educator at Bloomsburg and in the professional realm, a clinician and adjudicator for the pageantry arts in both DCI and WGI. Additionally, he's been instrumental in helping to build the pageantry arts in many parts of Asia for the last two decades and, in general, continues his freelancing career. GIF was also great to have on the show because he was part of the presentations for PASIC 2023. 
In this case, he was the panel moderator for a session through the keyboard committee on front ensemble engagement for the marching arts. I was able to check out a large portion of this clinic at PASIC and found it to be a great presentation from all involved. While there was a lot of great information discussed from all the panelists, what was most useful was that they all brought clips from their ensembles that they work with to show exactly how they work their groups and front ensembles into the general marching pageantry arts rehearsal program. It was very educational and effective, and great jobs all around. One more note before we get started. Towards the end of the conversation and during the random ask question segment, GIF discusses his appreciation for what was then the recently published autobiography from actor Matthew Perry. This interview was recorded just prior to the actor's very sad and untimely passing. I just want to make a note of that at this point. Now, let's get to the interview. We recorded this in two segments over Zoom on October 19th and 24th, 2023, and it begins right now. This came about, uh, I'm a member of the, of the keyboard committee for, for PAS. So I guess it'd be the International Keyboard Committee. And we, at our meeting last PASIC, we were informed that um, it was our year. I guess they do this little round robin kind of approach. It was our year to host or be in charge of one of these panel discussions. And I've been in the audience for several of these over, over the years and, and have always found them, them fascinating. So some ideas were coming up around the room, and, and I was the one that actually brought the idea up with, with somewhat of the topic that we're going with. But it was a, in a nutshell, the focus is, as instructors, how do we manage the, um, those long 10, 11, 12-hour days of playing for front ensembles within a a drum corps situation within an indoor percussion situation and within a marching band situation. So band camp for, you know, for instance, we are the one musical element um, or I could even say, take it a step further. We are the one element of, of the competitive atmosphere, the, that, that competitive group that does not have anything to do with the visual block. So we are not learning dots. Others are. Color guard is, you know, obviously the brass section, the wind section, the drum line. So maintaining that full day schedule where you are pretty much playing, be it sectionals, be it music ensemble. So um, there are, I remember back when I was with the cadets um, back in the day, that was something that, that we had to kind of manage. So, so that's the topic. It's both the how do you take care of the physicality of having the students play all day long and also the mental aspect of keeping them focused, um, breaking up the day a little bit. So that was the overall topic, and it, it went across pretty well, which is great, in the room. And in the room were people like Tom Burrett, Nancy Zeltzman, others who are not – 100% directly 
connected with this activity, but I got the feeling they understand how popular this is and they understand the importance um, of this particular topic. So we submitted, submitted for it and got it, but it's all about, like I said, the, the, the physical attributes and also the mental connection with that, specifically the front ensemble um, keeping them engaged, dealing with some of the physical situations that we can deal with, with playing four mallet technique for an extended period of time. So on the panel, we have Brian Dinkle, who's from uh, Blue Devils and RCC Indoor among several high schools out in California. Um, we have um, Ryan Kil- Kilgore. Is, is He's my co Ryan's also part of the of the keyboard committee. So Ryan and I, after it was established, this thing was going to happen, and then Ryan and I have kind of tag teamed the 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 process. But Ryan's on the panel. He is of Blue Coats and um, Rhythm X fame. Also, a bunch of high schools in the Midwest, um, and and he's he's a fellow college professor. So um, we can always kind of throw in a little nugget from that aspect of things. Um, Lauren Teal, who has been with Troopers Forever, um, also involved with several of the high school programs throughout Texas. Andy Filipiak, and I always butcher the last name, but he's at Woodlands right now, Woodlands High School in Texas. We wanted to, when Ryan and I were putting together um, and our list started with like eight people and we were informed by PAS. You're only allowed to have four panelists plus the moderator. So we had to obviously edit the list down. I was the one that's mentioned. I want to make sure I have somebody from Texas that is directly connected with one of these monster programs because Texas is it's it's a very unique situation, um, but it's there's a lot of them. And they are looked at both inside the state and also outside of the state. People look at some of these big programs at Texas from a standpoint of, all right, here's how they do it. Here's how I want to do it. So Ryan knew Andy better than I did. So Ryan reached out first and then Andy and I had some had some conversations. But see, he's also involved with uh, Mandarins, with mm-hmm. with the DCI aspect of things and he's also been involved with aspects within the WGI parameter. To be honest, our target audience audience for this is not the upper level DCI WGI um, groups. It is the lower level, especially the A class, um, maybe lower level of open with WGI with the instructors, but then the masses of marching bands that are out there. Um, that may not have the resource where you have 15 music instructors, you know, and, and I know that it's out there where you have people teaching percussion that aren't necessarily percussionists. So it's like getting them some, some information from people that have been in the trenches. And that was another thing that we wanted to focus on the people that are, they, that are there day in and day out. Um, with these long marathon days. So those are the four. So we got Brian, we've got um, Matt, Lauren, and Andy on the panel. Because you, you've been around the activity as long as you have, 
What have you noticed in terms of when you see a program that's maybe not taking care of those students in the in the way that you would like them to? What are things that you notice about either their playing or attitude or anything that physical health? What what's things kind of come up? Yeah, I think the physical health is the big thing. Um, you know, you can see a young group, um, you know, percussion so visually oriented, you know, so you see incorrect technique. You can see it. You don't need to hear it. Of course, right. we can hear it too, but but you can see it. So the pre, we're going to put a microphone connected to every you know acoustic keyboard instrument. So this is obviously going back a little bit. But we used to see what I like to use the term industrial arts class all the time, where it was like they were just... It was all-out warfare on the instruments. Right. It would hurt the instruments. There was a lot of tension. You know, you could see it from the shell, the, the shoulder all the way down to the to the hands. A lot of tension in the playing um, and a lot of aggressiveness. And part of the reason for this was it was hard for the front ensemble to be heard. Right. And that's not necessarily the front ensemble's fault, nor is it today, to be honest. But you know, we have what they're playing along with sometimes is just always loud. Yeah. And and then part of the miking aspect kind of adjusted that a little bit. But that's what we would see. You'd see bad technique. I still see, you know, some some um some rough technique today, but nowhere near as much as I used to like 15, 20 years ago. And I think the reason for that is the instruction has gotten better. We have people that we have a lot more of college trained percussion majors that are involved in the activity. If you go back 20 years ago, most of the members were not college music majors. Most of the, you know, I would say a bunch of the instructors still were, but not all of them. There was still that, that teach from within, you know, you had somebody that marched with a certain group for three, four years, and then they aged out and then they started teaching. So how they were taught when they started just kind of snowballed into how they would be teaching. And it wasn't necessarily always the best from a physicality standpoint. Um, just thinking of some other things I would notice, you know, you'd see the students kind of, you know, go like this all the time. You know, there's a break. Rubbing their, rubbing their hands. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah rubbing their arms. their arms. And, you know, so it's, you know, we would see that a lot. And, and you know, with some of the formalic grips that really have have just skyrocketed in popularity at the high school level. Um, you know, some of them you've really got to be careful because if you're using bad technique, tendonitis is very easy to, to come by. So, but again, it's all been getting better, mm -hmm. but our target audience is those folks that may not have the background. Look, let's be honest. It's the drumline based person that needs to teach the front ensemble. So they're used to their approach and and it's different. There are aspects of it that are different when when approaching keyboard instruments and approaching some of these four mallet techniques. And a lot of that you're looking at how a battery person is not necessarily and in, in many, most many programs, particularly if they have, if they 
have resources. The battery person is not the front ensemble person. Right. And so they, they, they have that communication has to be clear and obvious. But you need to realize, because I know in, in our, let's be honest, in our PASIC world, Mm -hmm. in our WGI world and in our DCI world, we're dealing with the upper echelon. We are not dealing with the majority. So people, I think people seem to, they, they forget that. Um, now, I know in the audience, we're, we're going to have that type of representation, but I'm also hoping that we get some people that, you know, that are not as comfortable and the people that are not, like I said earlier, are not real mallet percussion folks, but they find themselves in these roles. Over 80% of the marching bands in the country have no idea what PASIC is. Right. Now, there's a huge, just this mass volume of, of, of groups out there. Um, and it's kind of one of these things where it would be great if we somehow found, after we do this, if we somehow found a an additional way to get this message out there. Cause that's something, like I said earlier, people don't realize, I mean, we're, we're always in our own little bubble and our own little bubble and the mass from a pure, if we do the numbers, you know what I mean? If we crunch the numbers, I mean, our bubble is heavily in the minority of what's going on. I mean, we're dealing with the NFL, NBA, NCAA level of this activity, we are not dealing with the quote unquote high school level. If you know what I mean, you mm-hmm. know, it's something that people need to realize. Yeah. One of the things that I, that came to mind, even though it's not what you said, but you, you were mentioning kind of that the front ensemble tends to just be playing like they play, they play, they play while everyone's doing the marching is incorporating mm-hmm. the playing into the, the marching and visual aspect. But I've certainly noticed over the years with certain front ensembles that they're they've attempted to put in as much visual and is is that one way that some of them have kind of tried to kind of match i guess maybe what is going on behind them sure yeah i mean and and it's a lot of the times it's a it's a true form of what i call and this is a term that we throw around in the in the judging activity all the time this nonverbal communication mm-hmm. the the body you know that that them looking at each other and that slight little body pulse and that that sense of prep yeah. that's all choreographed and right. then sometimes the choreograph goes, you know, they'll make some minor adjustments to it. So it fits within the theme of the show. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that could very easy. That's something that's that's a non-playing aspect, although it's connected for sure. But there's something that's that that the instructors are spending some time on. They're getting the uniformity down with that along with getting the uniformity down with the with the performing and that's something that that's gotten better i mean i remember back in the days where you would have and it's not it was never the students mm-hmm. concern it was never the students fault i hate using some of these stronger words but you could tell they were taught this where okay if we're going to do a musical crescendo our body needs to portray 
an uplifting motion. And we'd have these people where they bend down, their yeah. chins are right next to the keyboard. And then as they're crescendoing, the music is crescendoing, their body is you know, lifting up. But it was amazing how many times the physical look of it was so much stronger than the actual musical crescendo, the actual musical <laughs> moment. Oh, yeah. The, the, the amount of time would be like, yeah, let's not be so concerned to how we're, how we're looking with the crescendo. We need right. to make sure we're actually playing a crescendo in that moment. So those things we don't we don't come across much anymore. But I really get a kick and I really appreciate the nonverbal communication that's going on because that's really helping with the overall ensemble cohesiveness of the front ensemble plus the connection of the front ensemble with with that that musical soundtrack that movie soundtrack that's coming at them from from behind talking about the importance of warming up the approaches to warming up that that these four individuals have is there a certain sequence they use and why um so and the importance of stretching you know, from a physical standpoint, and then also how they break up the day from, uh, you know, I remember, and I, I shared this with the, with the panel on one of our recent Zoom meetings. It was, I remember back when I was with the cadets and we'd be on the road and it was one of those days where it was just sectional, 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 because they're, you know, they're ping-ponging between the guard, the drumline, and the brass learning the new dots, you know, and it, this wasn't me. This was our full-time, you know, front ensemble uh, tech at the time, Jamie. He came up with these great ideas and these, this just mental breaks, and he would, on the spot, create like an obstacle course, so we're in some we're we're in some high school in the middle of Iowa and he's looking around and he's figuring out okay and it would literally be like a 15 20 minute thing but just to break up the day. So that was something that uh, you know that's one of the points of of discussion that 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 we're going to um approach also we're we're purposely going to stay away from the conversation of the use of electronics because that's a whole other can of worms. You know, what do you do when a student comes to you and say, you know, hey, you know, that bottom of my elbow, you know, it kind of it's starting to go numb or it hurts when I when I do an inside mallet rotation. You know, how do we how do you know, how do they address that? And, you know, so those are the. I think I got, I think I remembered both, you know, most of them. With these panel discussions, it's interesting, you know, the 50 minutes just flies by. And we're even thinking of the aspect of not all four of them are going to answer every single bullet point. You know, we're going to, we want to make sure we get through this stuff. And, and, um, because I know it's very easy for four people sharing their ideas. We, we, you know, we could get through two bullet points and we're out of time. Yeah. So those are the things, the, the importance of warm up of the warm up, the importance of stretching, how to break up the day, how to deal with, or how, you know, how do you approach the situation where the student comes to you and is like, Hey, my wrist hurts breaking up the day. I forget if I already mentioned that, but those are the main, main bullet points we're going to address. It's really hard with both 50 minutes, you have all these 
uh, you know, all these wonderful clinicians who are who are also who could who could do this whole presentation on their own. I mean, right. they could, yeah. you know, eat very easily. And then you've got to kind of make it bounce around a little bit. And yep. no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I will, you know, I'm going to try to stay out of the conversation as much as possible, but I may, you know, chime in with just a couple little things. Cause see, I've been removed from their, from their world, from the yeah. instruction standpoint, but back in the late nineties through the early two thousands, I mean, I was doing a lot of it and I know the activity is different than mm-hmm. but techniques are the same, you right. know? the actual playing techniques and, and, you know, those of us that know about, you know, the different four mallet grips, you know, there's that, that inherent little issues we got to keep an eye out with the Stevens grip, you know, with the pinky and the ring finger being in control of that outside mallet. And that, that in of itself just kind of opens up situations that, that we need to keep an eye on. Give me a summation of your percussion activities uh, teaching, performing, all things that you do uh, currently. Currently. Okay. So currently I'm um, I'm associate professor of music at, um, at Bloomsburg. And we recently have gone through a, a um, integration of three different. So this is going to be a long answer because right. I'm going to get, I'm going to get in trouble if, if I don't bring no, no, I no. Yeah. Go for it. It's fine. Yeah. So it's the Commonwealth University of Pennsylvania is the new umbrella university. So there are three state schools in PA that have been around for a very long time, um, and mine being one of these, we are now merged under one umbrella. So I am I am at the Bloomsburg campus, which is where I've been at for eighteen years. Um, but now officially I teach for the Commonwealth University of Pennsylvania. There have been no changes within the music department. There's, we're connected now with the music department at Mansfield, which is another of the, the well-known state schools. Um, they have a music degree. They have a music program. We have a music program. We have music degrees. When this merge first came about, one of the nice things was that we were we are able to update all of our um, all of our program criteria, so that's all been updated without having to go through the normal academic hoops in order to change to be able to create new courses and to be able to create new degree programs. It was literally snap and we're done. So that was nice. So that's where I am. That that's what I call the nine to five job. So I teach, um, I, I'm the director of the- Wait, Mar- what's the, hold on, what's the third school? Oh, the third school is Lock Haven. Okay. Um, Lock Haven University. Um, they, don't nec- they don't have a full music department. Mm-hmm. So um, it, the, the, from our standpoint with the music, yes, we're three campuses. They do offer gen eds and some ensembles at Lock Haven, but they don't have a- in an actual degree program that's taking place on that campus. Yeah. Okay. So it's Bloomsburg, Mansfield, and Lock Haven. So the Commonwealth University of Pennsylvania. And so this is brand new too. So it officially came into play here in the fall of 2023. All right. So that's the nine to five job. 
So my duties there are I'm the director of the marching band, do all the percussion lessons, percussion ensemble, percussion methods class. About 11, 12 years ago, I created a gen ed um, world music class. So I teach that at least one section, sometimes multiple sections of that a semester, depending on the teaching load. That has been, um, it was a lot of fun putting together. It kind of checks that cultural diversity box within the gen ed requirements. So for the, and then every now and then a little offshoot, sometimes we'll throw into the rotation, like a marching band technique class. We're, we, one of the things that we created with this new integration is we we are now offering a music business degree. So I have a music business background, although I don't have a degree in that, but back in the day. um, So I'll be teaching a couple of the kind of intro courses when those are needed which they aren't yet because because the the degree just started so that's the nine to five job um long answer i know i'm i judge for wgi percussion judge for dci judge for bands of america i'll also every now and then judge for the local circuits for a marching band and indoor the least amount of judging I do is in the fall because of the because of the marching band responsibility um, at the university. But I do do some. I mean, I just did a Bands of America regional down in Texas a couple weeks ago. Uh, and I do a bunch of the local circuit at different parts of the country for, for WGI. And I am an artist clinician for Yamaha, Vicfer, Zildjian, Remo. Um, been with Yamaha forever. I'm, I mean, I want to say 95, I lose track. So it's been a bit. Um, been with Vic Firth for a very long time. Been with Zildjian and Remo. Um, I've been lucky enough. I've been involved with the design of products for, um, for Vic Firth. And we're actually coming out with some new stuff here soon. We just finished up the prototype aspect process with that so i'm 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 involved with all of those companies they hire me to do uh, educational workshops with the like the all state music conventions at i've presented at PASIC. i presented at midwest in the past so my clinic slash workshop activity um pre-covid really busy um post-covid I've I I think we're at the point now where I could allow it to get back to the level that it was, but I'm trying to pull back the reins a little bit. What I do do is when I and find myself doing a judging event for a local circuit in the state of let's say in the state of Ohio, I will reach out to a local university or a high school program that does not do the indoor activity. And I'll and I'll do a um, I'll do a clinic during the same trip. That's an intentional decision. Oh, oh definitely. Okay. Yeah, and I've been doing it for years. To be honest, I'm surprised others don't follow rank. Although some have tried, some do. But it's a thing. I think I'm fortunate enough. I have such a strong relationship with the with the industry side of what we do that I've been able to make it work. So, yeah, so literally instead of getting on the plane, going to California and judging one indoor event, I get on the plane, I go to California, 
I do uh, a couple of work, one at a university, one at a high school that does not do the indoor activity because that's important. You know, I can't do a workshop with somebody I'm going to then oh, sure. judge, right? right. Yep. So, you know, I'll do those on, you know, during the, you know, afternoon, evening on Friday, and then I judge the event on Saturday and then, and then I head home on Sunday. Um, yeah, that is very intentional. The other thing I've been very fortunate with for the last, we're going on 22 years now, is I've done work abroad. So starting in 2005, I started doing some, some educational work and performing in Europe. And then a little bit, a couple years later in Asia, I established a teaching relationship in Singapore around 2005, 2006, pre-COVID, just about every year. Um, the Western Conservatory uh, connected with the National University of Singapore, the Young Se Tao Conservatory. Um, Jonathan Fox, who is from the States, is a uh, principal percussionist for the Singapore Symphony, and he's been teaching at the conservatory. He was my first contact over there. Um, we can, I think, I think we can elaborate on, on all of that. Sure. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's still part of my, what I call my freelance involvement. Mm -hmm. So I've been very fortunate to find myself in several different countries, mostly focusing in Southeast Asia and um, Western Europe. But I have found myself, like I, I was just in Australia for the first time this past May. Awesome. Um, and ironically enough, and I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, depend, it really depends on how you look at it. That was my seventh continent. So I have been on all seven. It's, yes. like, it's one of those, oh my God, what have I done? And then it's kind of like, all right, well, that's, that's semi-cool. Yeah. What's but, the, uh, uh, well, that, that begs the question, what is yeah. the, um, what is the indoor percussion situation like on Antarctica? Are the penguins up right. for it or are they just so not? We have photos of me with my Vic Firth backpack in the ice and snow in Antarctica. But no, there was no workshop there. That was something my dad put together as like, I have a, I have a younger brother. So there's the father and son trip. It yeah. was, that was dad's seventh. So it was always on his radar to, um, to do it. So that was my sixth. Mm -hmm. And I had never been to Australia yet um, un until this, this, this past uh, spring. But yeah, I've been very fortunate. Um, the doors have opened on an inter international level, um, I used to perform quite a bit abroad. I don't perform that much. To be honest, in the last 10 years, that's been the aspect of my percussion career that I've purposely put a backseat on just because of time. Yeah. Um, the last time I had to practice and really put in some hours and um, – get myself prepared for a performance was the last mass marimba orchestra that Gordon Stout put together for PASIC. Yeah, and that, that took place in either 21 or 22. I literally, I mean, it's not that long ago, but I should yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it was, and they come, and I've done these mass orchestra performances before. I've done like three other ones in the past. Yeah. And they all involved the traditional Musser arrangements. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not that much to work up, but on this one, 
much, and I'm saying this with a smile on my face, but not knowing that, okay, they're going to commission composers to write brand new pieces for this most recent version. I mean, this stuff was hard. I mean, we, you know, it's all PDF these days. So I'm printing right. off this 15 page, you know, not score. Oh no, this is right. Marissa two. This is, yeah. and I'm going, <laughs> Oh my God, what have I done? So right. it was, yeah. I mean, it, but again, it was great to kind of get back in the saddle from that standpoint to learn new literature, but it hadn't been a while. Yeah. And the experience of that, that moment in that group was, I mean, just incredible. And I have a very strong relationship with Gordon Stout, you know, starting when studying with him in undergrad, but he and I have always been close ever since. To me, that was almost as memorable, the fact being part of the group, but then seeing after the concert, he was treated like a, like he's always treated like a rock star, but he was treated like, you know, Taylor Swift at the end of that concert. I mean, that was his huge that was his moment so it was great to to be able to see that yeah well it's too bad that you don't perform i get it i understand why because it just takes so much time to to get to levels that we want to get to because i remember see i even that when i was before we started the this telling him that you know it was like 20 years ago he did a like a three-hour clinic at at a, at a middle school and high school in pennsylvania and I remember you were playing on like a four, you know, like a the this like a tiny bar, four octave, uh, kilon something, and I was just like, I couldn't believe the sound you were getting out of that instrument. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, imagine what Gift sounds like when he's playing a concert instrument. So I, I just like it was even so. That's that's what I was. I will work stuff up. So like literally a month ago, Brian Mason brought me in for a little mini residency at Moorhead State. And Brian and I have worked together through WGI judging for, you know, 15 years. And he's we've tried to make this happen several times. And it and it happened this fall. And it was in connection. Again, here's this thing where it's like it's more than one event when I get on the plane. So they Moorhead State hosts their own high school marching band festival. So I was judging that, but I came in two days early because I did some workshops with the percussion studio. And then we did a little performance together and I literally worked up, um, you know, this, this, um, Leanda, this, this classical guitar piece that Mm -hmm. gets played an absolute ton. Well, through tap space, through tap space publications, I, I came up with a percussion ensemble version of it. Oh, right. And it's one of those things where it's really easy to just throw it together in like 45 minutes mm. because the, uh, because the ensemble parts on purpose are not very challenging. Yeah. And I've been playing that thing for 20 plus years. So, so for me to just awesome. dust, you know, to kind of blow the dust off of something like that, no problem. Yeah. But it's again, it's the new literature. See, that's right. the thing. Because even before, to be honest, before the the marimba concerto, or sorry, before the marimba orchestra, it would go back to when I was getting my doctorate at at Michigan State and learned the Schwantner marimba concerto and mm-hmm. performed that. Yeah. Um, so that was happening. And then I commissioned Jim Casella to do a piece with the group in Singapore. And that I think took place um, 
2010 rings a bell. So I can literally connect the dots, but there's a lot of space between the dots with yeah. me learning learning new literature. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's great. And it's a great point about, you know, revisiting and knowing that there are things that if you need to do it pretty quickly, you can get it back in and it's not going to take a ton of time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. All right. Well, well, let's back up to the college job. So tell me about getting the position where you were when you got the job at Bloomsburg. Yeah. It was Bloomsburg. Yeah, well, we still call it Bloomsburg. Yeah, it's okay. still Bloomsburg. Yeah, it's it's kind of like Bloomsburg campus, but we don't even use the term campus. It's just yeah. Bloomsburg. Gotcha. So you just have new letterhead, is what it sounds like. Exactly. That's right. I call. I use the term. There's this new umbrella organization yes. sitting on top. That's I got it. Yeah, yeah. Everything else is the same. <laughs> Everything else is the same. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So getting the job. Okay. So getting the job. So. Um, and again, you've noticed I'm, I'm, this is either a good thing for you or a bad thing for you. I'm not a short answered type person. Right. So, yeah. I never in a million years would have thought I would have gone to get my doctorate, but I, um, I was a finalist for some college positions in the early two thousands, kept hitting the doctorate wall, not having the magical piece of paper. Fine. So put the feelers out. Because this is, I was already established, you know, uh, heavily established with Yamaha, heavily established with Vic Firth, been on the staff with the cadets for a while, been judging for WGI for seven, eight years at the, already at that point. I was, li- I was like, all right, I, I guess I'll get this degree because I want the college gig. So um, Michigan State put together a great um, financial package, a great co- combination of endowments and fellowships. So it didn't cost me anything. Did full-time, two, two years and a summer, and I was out of there. Had a great experience, great contacts, did a ton of playing. Yeah. So this is back in the early 2000s, so 2004 to 2006. Yeah. And then as we all know, these university jobs don't come up very often. So I'm wrapping up the spring of 2006. I'm looking at what the postings are. There were three for percussion, um, one being in Pennsylvania, one being in Georgia, and one being in Texas. And I grew up in upstate New York. So I kind of grew up in the Northeast zone, had never heard of Bloomsburg, um, even though I drove by, it, I was like a half an hour west of it all the time because I grew up going to Penn State football games. Oh, um, but just never. But Bloomsburg was just a little east of our travel kind of thing. So, like yeah. it would be on the, it would be an exit that you would never take, kind of thing. Exactly. But I didn't even go by the exit because the exit <laughs> itself is named Bloomsburg, you know, because of the town. But yeah, I was, I was go down to Williamsport and I'd go west. If yeah. I had gone east once, then I would have had been had seen the term Bloomsburg before. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so applied finalist, got the job, um, been here ever since. Um, you know, it's one of those things I get asked all the time, you know, or especially at college levels, people are like, Oh yeah, I want I wanted, you know, I want to get my degrees and I want to get a university job. And my my, you know, 
my response to that is there's not a lot of them. Strive for what you want to do for sure, but also have backup plans, you know, because right. it's, it's just there just are not a lot. Um, I mean, I got I got lucky. You know, it's a it's an interesting the situation I'm in here. They encourage me and they they support me to keep the freelance schedule alive. So for me to miss a day here and there is not that big of a deal. It's great. Um, we get some travel funding, especially when I do some of the international or the national level events, you know, presenting at PASIC or, you know, presenting um, at an event in Germany or the Netherlands or something like that. The, the university um, sometimes, you know, is able to, to chip in. And I know that that's not the case at all higher education um, institutes. So yeah, I mean, it was just a bait. It was a typical, you know. It was posted. I apply. I applied to all three. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, two of the three, you know, invited me, you know, to come to campus. Um, so, but yeah, see, but I had experienced the college thing before, the college teaching thing before. I had done a, a full year sabbatical replacement at Penn State University, mm-hmm. and then I had taught part time in Rochester, New York. Um, which was where I was living before went to Michigan. Um, I was teaching part-time at Nazareth College mm-hmm. with Kristen Shiner McGuire. Yep. Um, I was doing percussion method classes for them and some lessons. So I had already kind of dabbled in with the higher ed situation. So I, I knew it was really the Penn State experience. I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I want to do, you know, because yeah. I was able to run everything. I mean, you know, all the lessons, percussion ensemble, the literature with the percussion ensemble um, have kept in touch with a lot of those students mm. from that one academic year. And um, a lot of them are still heavily involved with music. You know, it's great. You know, we got, the, you know, we've got a couple of them are, are college professors couple of them are high school band directors. A um, couple of them are, you know, play with regional orchestras, like some pretty high-end regional orchestras also, you know, kind of thing. So, so it's great. When you would get the, you would hit the, the, the doctorate wall, as you refer yeah. to it. They said that, or you realized that, that you were based, as my, my wife once put it, who's also an academic, she was like, we have the, uh, there's the doctorate pile, and then there's, the other pile basically was that what was going like you found that out or something well that or is you know and i i hate to say and i'm not going to get into specifics because no i understand they know but it's like you know we all know each other yeah right it's such you know you have that whole thing seven degrees of separation for kevin bacon forget it i mean it's one you know (laughs) two in the music world it's one in the percussion world we all know each other so you know i was a finalist and would be you know be a finalist at some of these positions and i knew what my my professional experience was and i knew what i could bring to the table and um i was the one that didn't have the piece of paper so the fact that i was a finalist without the piece of paper you know, then it was just, yeah, this, this, this just isn't going to happen. Cause even today, you know, you, you're dealing with the conservatory of music level. Okay. They don't care about the piece of paper, you know, cause we've got, you know, we still have some of our main, main, you know, um, percussion world teachers out there, you know, the big names, they don't have doctorates. A lot right. of them, you know, so, and, you know, I get it. 
And that's completely legit. Yeah, it's yeah. just when you get to that next level down, it's like, yeah, you're, you're right. It's pile A, pile B. At our institute here, pile A, pile B, yeah. you know, period. Because, you know, it's – we need – you know, because it's a state school and it's all about, you know, we need to be able to say 95% of our faculty have that terminal degree kind of thing, you know, and it's, and it's not even our decision. It's what's decreed onto us by, by the government, the, the, the national governing elements above higher education, you know, yeah. that's the thing. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough, it's, it can be very frustrating for folks out there. I get it. But unfortunately, it's kind of the nature of the beast to get that tenure track position. Not to say you need it to get the 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 part time higher education position, but right. to get that tenure track position, it's pretty much you know black and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your years at Bloomsburg has the job um, because you you've been there as long as you have now. Has it? uh morphed in ways is it is it a similar position has it changed because of the things you brought uh, you mentioned the the um the world class mm-hmm. but are there other things that that have been uh part of the job experience that have expanded your role i guess in the university the the world music class was a big that because before that I was teaching our version of music appreciation, which we mm-hmm. still teach and understanding some of the ins and outs of higher education that I did not know before I got the full time job. Like, you know, oh, yeah, you got to sit on all these committees. Nobody yeah. told me that before. Oh, yeah, right. you got to write these all these reports. OK, okay. but it's realizing the importance, especially in a music department the butts in the seats of the gen ed classes. That's right. what keeps the department alive. Yep. Period. Yes. So, so when we created the world music class, it now opened up a second Avenue of, okay, you do the gen ed, you do the music appreciation class for the arts credit of the gen ed for those non-music majors. Then now we got another option where it's now, this is the cultural diversity requirement. Yeah kind of thing. So it just really helped the overall department out. So ever since I created the class, I've, I've, I have not taught the music appreciation class before. Now we still teach it here. It's still being taught here. It's just by other professors. Sure. That was a change. The only other change is when I first started the job, I was, it was a one man show with the marching band. It was Mm -hmm. me and no other adult. It was me and student section leaders. So that was interesting. (laughs) It's like a challenge, maybe. I mean, it was hiring. (laughs) It was interesting. So, but then we've been able to get it to the point where. I look at myself now as I am the marching band director slash administrator. So mm-hmm. I'm still heavily designed involved with the design of the show that we're going to do. Okay. I'm the one that deals with the grades. I'm the one that deals with the dining services for food for band camp with the athletic, the, the athletic director here at the school, the AD and I have a really close relationship, which is great and really helps out. I'm the one that's in communication with him. I will do all of band camp as we're going through the whole learning process. But then I've been able to, I literally have given up some of my teaching load 
Mm. In order for us to hire uh, part-time folks, and we have, like, currently we have two local high school band directors that are in in high school programs where the the marching band does not compete. Mm. So they do Friday night football, and then their weekend's done. So I have them come in on Saturdays. Now, I will still come to a game or two, but... You know, I I don't have to do everything like I used to. And that's nice. Uh, that's been really the only change. Um, it's, you know, the percussion ensemble thing is is every semester. And, you know, the, the amount of people in the percussion ensemble will change from, from semester to semester. I have majors, minors, and then even folks that, that played in high school that are not a major or minor, but there is like a kind of a makeshift audition process. I need to make sure they, you know, they know what they're doing kind of, you know, we can't have, Hey, I've always wanted to learn how to play the drums, you know, and they just kind of jump into percussion ensemble. No, for my teaching duties, there have been a couple of minor adjustments, but for the most part, it's the same. Yeah. Well, how did you convince who you needed to convince about the, it seems obvious to me that you need more than just you, but how did you convince the administration that I need, I'm going to kill myself if I, yeah. <laughs> the only one doing this the whole time. Well, we got the numbers, we got up, you know, to a point where it was just kind of insanity. But then also I've been and this has been going on for like a couple little health issues that I have to keep an eye on. So mm-hmm. that was something that, that came up. And it's also my willingness, because again, I'm not just doing this to be nice. I'm doing this to also for me not to have to do so much. Right. But you know, I I gave away some of my teaching load in order for us to, you know, and then the budget, you know, all my my marching band budget does not come from the department. It comes from the student activity fees and this, you know, government, the community university government association. So I'll use some of that to bring in, you know, like, a, you know, here's a guard specialist to come in with, you know, for band camp and then maybe once a week. And then here's, you know, yes, I'm the drummer. I mean, I, I've been involved with drumline forever, but I'm juggling everything else. So I'll bring in a drumline specialist and, and, and a front ensemble person during camp. And yeah. then that's where we get a vast majority of all the, the, the teaching, the learning aspect is done. So. Just last question on that with, mm-hmm. with the fees, is that something that do you like purposely like have contact so that, you know, like you get a percentage or is it like, is it variable or is it like you, you get this much just out of this fund that you don't really know much about how it would right. happen. There's a huge lump giant figure mm-hmm. and, and it's delegated that I get this much. I got So you. when our enrollment goes up, then I get more. When our gotcha. enrollment goes down, then I'll get a little less, but it's been, you know, it, it's been very quote unquote fair you yeah. know, we are not, I'm not dealing with a band of 200, you know, we aren't that big. Our numbers have not gotten back to pre COVID numbers yet, but we have been in a, a steady incline since COVID. So from all that standpoint, everything is, it's, you know, I'm in a, a good um, working relationship with that student government organization. I'm in a good working relationship with the athletic department. 
And that really helps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really, 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 really important. Yeah. Well, I wanted to follow up on the um, with your the clinic work you do, particularly the, the what you've done in Asia. Uh-huh. So, when you when that begins, when that relationship begins, what is the situation for that art form there? What What are you walking into to, when you begin that? I am walking into like by the first two area the first two countries were singapore and thailand yeah and both are heavily western influence when it comes to music especially singapore so i'm literally walking into like their version of juilliard straight up facility better gear better students from all over asia Because they have, again, it's kind of like Yale, where it's like everybody's on a free ride. Yeah. Okay. So that's what this conservatory of music was. Now, in Thailand, it's different from that standpoint. But they have their marching band activity. They have their indoor percussion activity. And it is modeled directly off of what we do. Okay. So I'm brought over. I originally was brought over there to, to judge. Mm-hmm. Judge their marching band um, championships. Um, back then, it was called the Yamaha Cup because Yamaha, you know, Thailand was the main sponsor. But what was very ironic was I'm sitting there watching a marching band wearing Madison Scout uniforms straight up. Yeah. The opener is from the Blue Devils, 1998, and then the ballad tune is Phantom Regiment from this, and then they're closing with the Cavalier, whatever. I mean, they, back then, yeah, they were just ripping everything off, and none of it's regulated. So there's nothing we can do about it. Sure. And to even rub salt in the wound in a in a good way, and I'm I'm smiling as a, I say this, is Michael Gaines back then, this is in the early 2000s, he's at the event with me. He's judging. Yeah. He's watching his own Cavalier drill on the field as they're doing the Cavalier thing. And it's like, what can you say? Yeah. yeah. So, but it's it, it's not that way today. I will say this: there is absolutely some incredible music being performed in a lot of these countries in Southeast Asia. I mean, there's some incredible stuff in Indonesia, in Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore, Japan, China. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, so. I know you didn't ask this question, but I'll just kind of bring this up. Sure. Um, I first I first arrive into Thailand to judge, but then the next two trips are to do educational workshops. Mm-hmm. And then I judge again. And then so it's like the door opens with one aspect of my freelance career, yeah. but then it can it it can split. You know what I mean? In a good way. And so it was the same thing. It's like um my first experience in China was back in 2014 in Shanghai, and it was part of a sabbatical trip. And I got, you know, pe- people here in the States got me connected with somebody at a conservatory of music in Shanghai. And it was a percussionist there. And I got to witness their traditional Chinese percussion ensemble rehearsal, and then also more of a Western 
ensemble mm-hmm. rehearsal. And then there was like Q and a kind of thing where there was the aspect of me being able to ask them questions. So everything I asked was connected with the world music class because, because that's what my sabbatical was based on. So I'm just getting a slew of information. Yeah. Every single question that was asked of me as this, this foreigner, this American who comes over, all they wanted to talk about was DCI period. (laughs) And it's like a couple of them even had some horrifically copied, like it had been through a ditto machine. I don't know how many times like warm up exercises from like 1993 blue devils. And they wanted to know, all right, how does this work? I mean, it was very interesting how the influence of what we do in the States, you know, you, you just find it everywhere. So, yeah, so that's how it happened. And it's uh, I've, I've developed some great relationships throughout Southeast Asia, been to Japan, have judged in Japan, um, have judged and also done um, educational workshops directly for WGI in China. Um, that was the year before COVID. And that was the beginning of something that could have been big. But then COVID hit. Because it was a full-blown regional by WGI China, mm-hmm. an offshoot of our organization. Yeah. All the judges were from the states. And when I say all, I mean color guard, in winds, and percussion. Mm-hmm. Um, we were all over there for this very unique event. Um, I got the sense this was the start of something big. Um, and then um, the percussion people were left behind in a good way. Smile on my face. We ended up doing three days of workshops with nothing but percussion instructors, not students, instructors. Mm-hmm. That was fascinating. Why was, it, why was it fascinating? Everything. It was Julie Davila did it with me. So Ju- Julie Davila, who is current, the, the current PAS president, mm-hmm. she yeah. and I go way back. I mean, I, in, I judged her groups when she taught outside of Nashville, high school groups with yeah. the WGI thing. But we've known each other forever. We were the we were two of the judges that were sent over for that WGI regional. When we got to location number two, which was the educational stuff. Um, not one word or one hand motion that she and I made for three days, not one thing was not captured by a multitude of video cameras. Nice. It was almost to the point, and Julie and I have talked about this and we've kind of joked about it. I would not be surprised if there's a DVD now that's been being sold for, you know, the past five years of, you know, the WGI percussion experience where it's like, and of course we don't know anything about this. Sure. Yeah. Everything was captured and they were sponges. The, the participants were sponges. I mean, it was great. There was definitely a language barrier Mm -hmm. for a lot of them, but not all of them, but for a decent amount of them. But we would hit everything. We would hit eight on a hand. We hit mallet technique. We hit marching technique. They mostly just wanted to see the the, the teaching process was right. pretty much it. 
How do you go from zero, zero to 50 or zero to 20, you know, kind of thing. So it was just that, but it was cool, you know, but it's, it's a very different culture over there. Are they over there? Cause you've mentioned how, how it's very Western based, uh, or at least it had been, but is it, is it still, so is, are they still playing like Western style music or, or have they incorporated their own folk culture into what's going on or what's in terms of music selection, what, what's yeah. developed there? So what in China itself, it was mostly what, when we judged the regional, it was the show in a box is the term I like to use, you know, these, these websites over here. Okay. That's what we judged. Okay. So a lot of it now, to say, now I did not judge the color guard aspect of the regional, so I would not be surprised if there was some traditional music that they were using yeah. with their work. When the the experience and the connections I've made in Thailand, I want to say it's 2017 or 2018, a group from Thailand came to Dayton. Oh, okay. They ended up being, it was a scholastic open group. They made finals, legitimate. Um, but they incorporated some of the traditional instruments, but mm. it was bass drum line, tenor line, snare line, front ensemble, four mallet, two mallet technique. But they also had some, you know, like the, the, the Thai xylophone, which mm. is very different. They incorporated that. They incorporated some of their traditional drums set up, like you were just stationary. Yeah. Um, so, and I think they were successful because they went that route. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I know in when I judge in the Nether, in the Netherlands, which incorporates like eight different countries throughout Western Europe, we will see um, kind of a, a a mix mosh. We will see some of them using the band in the box or the show in a box concept from yeah. us. From the, from the U.S., we'll see some of them writing their own version along the same lines of the show in a box, but it's their own thing. And then we've also seen them um, incorporate, especially from a storyline standpoint, some of the traditions of the country that they come from. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what's really cool about that gig is Italy, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, um, Belgium, France. England, the Netherlands have all been represented over the years. Mm. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, it's not at the level of Dayton. Mm-hmm. They know it's not at the level of Dayton, but they're heading in the right direction. And I've been, I've been over there judging since 2005 and they've actually had, I've been one of the people that has been training their judges. So I've been involved with a lot of judge training over and it's been fascinating seeing the advancement of the quality of the performances and of the shows over the years. Yeah. Um, to be honest, COVID really hit hard in Western Europe compared to compared to the US. The they are nowhere near back what they used to be pre-COVID. And the reason is this, and a lot of people don't don't know this. All of those countries that I mentioned in Western Europe, there very few of them have something that is looked at as music in school. Right. 
not done in the schools. It's yeah. done in the communities. You have a music school, a community music school outside of the academic school. So these groups, the drum corps that are over there, Beatrix is one that's that that has a connection with the U.S. They used to come over to DCI back in the back in the the nineties or eighties, nineties, and early two thousands. Jubal is another one. Those are all connected with communities. And the indoor groups are connected with communities. When I judge the indoor groups over there, I'm seeing three to four generations on the floor at the same time. It's really unique and it's really cool. Um, But see, that's what they have to do. I mean, they can't have an age limit because then they aren't going to have enough members, you know, but it's great. It works for them. You get that. Oh, yeah, there's grandson with the mom and grandpa all in the same group. You know, it's kind of neat. Yeah. Different. That's very cool. Well, back up, Gif, where did you grow up? High school, grade school was all in the Finger Lakes area of upstate New York and the southern the southern tier, I guess, is a little bit more specific. Binghamton, Elmira, Corning, that general general area. And when I went to undergrad at Ithaca, it was about you know 50 minutes away from where I went to high school. Do you have any family members in the arts? Uh, my uncle on my dad's side was a percussionist. Grew up outside of Pittsburgh, studied with the big boys from the Pittsburgh Symphony, went into the military, spent a bunch of time in New York City, um, nothing serious gig-wise, but he was kind of was able to soak in back when they had those live orchestras with all those radio shows back mm. in the day. Yeah. So he was he was in on a bunch of that. So he's the only one that we have like a music you know, music in the blood, so to speak. And he and I have kept in touch over the years. He's retired in Arizona. So anytime I do work out in Arizona, I'll always meet up with him. He's like 92 now and he still teaches. Um, he'll do like just a community um, compu- community music discussions, hmm. um, which kind of, you know, keeps him mentally very active, which is great. Nice. How, how fast are his paradiddles? Um, all right. He gave, it's interesting. Last time I saw him, he gave me his old, old pair of timpani sticks that he had that had like the burned in at, at near the butt end, the burned in Vic Firth. Nice. And I think they'd been he he would rewrap, you know, he would do his own the own felt. I think he told me he had rewrapped them probably three or four times over the years. But um, those things were way early i'm sure in the vic firth era which is kind of cool yeah yeah i don't even know when that i certainly was not not doing had no awareness of vic firth when those were around no no i mean i know everything started out of vic's garage i know that yeah um and then the rest is history as they say yeah so how does percussion get started for you then very young. I mean, the good, you know, you've heard the story before the pots and pans banging, you know, when I was probably four, five, six. I think fourth grade was when it officially started in grade school with the lessons in school in New York. 
And I don't distinctly remember this, but it's been brought up several times where, you know, you want to play drums and it's they do the whole let's test your sense of time and sense of rhythm without knowing any musical. So it's kind of a call and answer thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So the teacher would just kind of clap a rhythm and have me clap it back. And and then anything he did, I could clap back. And it just kept going and kept going and kept going. And then fortunate enough, um, so did lessons in school, um, very small school district for elementary school, and then was fortunate enough to take private lessons probably by the time I was in Oh, I don't know, sixth grade, seventh grade. So that really kind of helped to reinforce things. Yeah, just banging stuff. I bang on things all the time now, like just sitting at a restaurant and the fingers, you know, the fingers start going and I don't even realize I'm doing it. Right. That, that, that still happens. You probably played lots of tunes on your dashboard. Yeah, you never, exactly. Right. Yeah. I've never been the type that had a pair of drumsticks and play on the on the uh, the steering wheel while you're oh. at a stoplight, but the fingers, yeah. you know, on the steering wheel have always been have always been active. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. W- was there a big marching component to your school portion? Yeah, it was decent. You know, we had a competitive marching band, upstate New York. Um, they have their own circuit. Championships were always at the Carrier Dome in uh, in Syracuse, so that was like the big thing, the dome, yeah. um, being able to perform in that cavernous, you know, space. We were we were pretty good. We weren't, um, you know, we were going up against the big school districts in the Syracuse and Rochester area. I played snare. Surprisingly enough, I played snare every year in the marching band. And then immediately when I started in undergrad, I started teaching some mm. some smaller local high school groups that were, you know, within 45 minute drive of Ithaca. So started making a little bit of side money, um, you know, right out right out of the gate, you know, freshman year, fall semester. Didn't do a lot of it to start with, but kind of stayed involved with the activity continuously since high school. Now, on the lesson side, when you were growing up, was this total percussion? Were you focusing on drum set? What was involved there? It was mostly concert percussion, kind of focused on the all-state audition aspect Mm -hmm. of things. There was a guy, I'm really bad with names, and of course I should remember these names. There was a, when I, so I went from a very small school district to a very large school district between seventh and eighth grade. And that was kind of a game changer. Um, Not to say that I still wouldn't have gone into music if we stayed in the original district, but the the larger school setting, which was in the southern tier near Elmira and Corning, that was, you know, really opened my eyes to a lot more possibilities. So when I started taking private lessons there, I'm I'm pretty sure the guy's name was Stephen Shaw, rings a bell. Um, I hope I'm not incorrect. But... That's where I kind of got in, started getting into the mallet stuff was with him. And again, it was mostly based around the, they call it the NISMA, the New York State Music Association, something or other, the NISMA grade six all state audition. So we were doing, leading up to that, we were doing some stuff out of the Goldenberg 
the the Bach little violin sonata stuff that's in the back of the Goldenberg book was those were grade six. Those were all state audition level. So I remember working up one of those never touched four mallets. Now you got to remember this is back, you know, in the dark ages. I mean, in high school, there just was very, very little four mallet work at all. Yeah. So uh, my audition piece to get into Ithaca was Flight of the Bumblebee at like Mach 12. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, Sarone. And I remember doing a, like one of those basic John Beck, um, you know, timpani etudes. So those yeah. that that was my audition stuff. While this is all going on, are you involved in anything else? Are you doing any sports or student government yeah. or church related or? No, I, everything music. I mean, I, I was in the choir all the time. A lot of people don't know this. Um, you know, I was heavily involved with the music theater scene, even the summer stock scene through high school and even early on at Ithaca, not at Ithaca, but, um, you know, back at the hometown had a great relationship with the local couple of choir directors who I still keep in touch with today. Um, and even got into all state. I didn't get into percussion as in, you know, New York all state situation. I mean, I got a 99 on the grade six solo, but if you didn't get a hundred, forget it. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a very strong statewide high school organization. So you got Texas, Obviously, they're an enigma. They're all to themselves. They're right. in a whole other planet. But then I would rank New York right up there with just about any of the other state yeah. um, uh, education, you know, music education approaches. I'm probably wording that wrong. So did not get in with percussion. Fine. Um, but shockingly enough, I got in through singing. So mm-hmm. I was on, in the one of the all-state choirs my my uh, senior year. Um, so that was, you know, in that was part of it quite a bit messed around on the drum set, had a drum set growing up, but that was one of those avenues in, in as a percussionist that I haven't spent a whole lot of time with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I could get around fine, you know, I can, you know, play some of the basic grooves from a, I'm probably a little bit more comfortable teaching it than playing it. So, yeah. So, you know, it was all concert percussion oriented, um, which led in nicely with, with the experience at Ithaca. You said summer stock. Were you, were you doing, were you acting and were mm-hmm. you doing it musicals and everything? Both. I was acting and then also in the pit orchestra stuff. Wow. It really would depend on how my schedule worked out. Mm-hmm. So I did the high school musical thing. Um, you remember what what musical it was? Oh yeah, I mean I did several of them. So I, in high school itself, it was Annie, mm-hmm. Guys and Dolls, and Joseph and the Amazing Te- Technicolor Dreamcoat. Then the summer stock stuff. I was in Hello Dolly. Um, I was in there playing our song, which is a very small. It's only eight people in the cast. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of neat because that was a, kind of almost like a theater in the round oh, type sure. venue. Everything else was your typical auditorium. And then I played in the pit um, percussion, Man of La Mancha, and oh, then 
um, an absolute hoot of a percussion book to play was um, Sweeney Todd. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was a challenge. That yeah. was, that was cool. That says some great Xylo licks and yeah. yeah, that, that was a lot of fun um, putting that together. And this was in Elmira, New York connected with the Clemens center. They had a, it was a really strong regional theater situation. And again, it was my old choir director and then the neighboring choir director were both involved. And I really enjoyed playing in the pit orchestra stuff also. Yeah. Um, and then that kind of just other things, you know, just got really time consuming. So it was hard to commit with anything. My daughter's been really, you know, she does the high school musicals and, you know, we're all, we're less than three hours to New York city. So we'll try to get into the city once, twice a year to, you know, check out some stuff. And so it's, it's been cool. I'm not going to say reliving it, but it's been cool re, you know, kind of getting back into that, that zone. Yeah. Do you, yeah. do you find that that, uh, you know, however much experience you had there, that that informs how you do, how you work with marching percussion and and marching band. It all involves. It all, I think, has developed me into a better musician for sure. I mean, I think it maybe the connection with the marching band, drum corps, indoor thing from a standpoint of the general effect on mm -hmm. things, how the audio and visual lineup, I can maybe tap into some of those ideas. But just being an overall musician, um, kind of having my, you know, developing my ear at a younger age from that standpoint, um, you know, harmonic structure, pitch intonation that that the 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 payoff is huge and it's not one of those things where i preach from the from the rafters saying you know all instrumentalists you know you should also be involved with some kind of vocal aspect but if you can you should i mean i know it's kind of hard to maybe make that happen but it's a definite it's a different skill set and there's definitely a bleed a bleed over so, yeah, I look back, you know, as a, you know, look back at the experience in, in several very positive, um, positive ways. When you get to working with Gordon at Ithaca, what kinds of things are you feel like you're, you're pretty good at and where are the places where he sees you, you can really, really grow? So let's see. I mean, I, we could spend an hour and a half just talking about this, but. Obviously, Gordon, when you, if, you know, if you're going to study with Gordon, Gordon, there's going to be that that slight slant to the mallet world. Mm -hmm. Even if that's not what you necessarily want to do, it's going to end up happening a little bit. I jumped right on board with that. I think from a rhythmic competency and a snare drumming aspect of things, I was pretty confident we got, you know, kind of polished up the Cerrone with him, got into some of the Delaclue stuff, um, which is always fascinating seeing how other parts of the world, you know, kind of approach things, especially from a notation standpoint. Yep. Um, so I, 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 you know, I felt comfortable with that. 
um, one of the early things, and again, there are those little moments in time that, that, you know, you remember first semester with Gordon, he would always have this freshman seminar every Monday night it was. And a lot of it was based around sight reading. Mm. And to this day, you know, I feel extremely comfortable in, you know, sight reading, especially behind a mallet instrument. And that's been a big foundation with a lot of my current workshops and seminars is, is showing people how to increase your comfort level with, you know, with sight reading. But I remember as an incoming freshman, and again, this is very common. You come in and you, you're reading something, you screw up and you stop. Right. And then you start again and then you stop and then you start again and then you stop. So it was one of these early, early Monday things. And one, you know, one of these early semester Monday night things. And he kind of called me out on it in front of everybody. He's like, so what is it that, you know, you know, what, what do we like about GIF? Oh, well, you know, he's pretty this, blah, blah. And then what do we not like what we're hearing? Well, he keeps stopping. So it's not actually, you know, we aren't, we aren't hearing the piece. Yeah. So that was kind of a, a good early slap in the face, which, which was great. So I remember that. Um, but, you know, I started freshman year with him with the four mallet thing. You know, we did, we, you know, we kind of continued on the Goldenberg stuff. I mean, and I use this book still today. He had this, I'll think of it. It was a certain sight reading book we would use, but I started with his grip, with Gordon's grip. Oh, okay. Which a lot of people do not use. So it's it's the Burton grip. Let me see what I got laying around here. So, you know, you've got the cross grip, the Burton grip. Right. But Gordon puts that. Let me try to get the I got the whole fuzzed. There we go. Yeah. Puts the uh puts the other mallet um in between his his uh, middle and ring instead of between the index and ring. Yeah. Um, so I went through and did a bunch of, um, did some basic, it was interesting, did not start like with yellow after the rain, did not start with some of the more traditional stuff. I was doing specific movements out of the box Sonata Partita book, four mallet wise. And then of course the two mallet thing, we did a little timpani, um, with Gordon to start with. We also had Ted Rounds was the assistant percussionist, percussion teacher at Ithaca when I started also. So I, I remember sophomore year for a semester studied with Ted. That's when I learned the Stevens grip and spent some decent amount of time on timpani with Ted. It was a great percussion ensemble experience because um, Gordon was all about new literature so that was awesome. So we got to experience some really unique stuff. Were you, from, go ahead. Sorry, as, as a follow-up on the, when you're talking about new literature, how much of his writing were you seeing him do or encountering at this time? He was writing the whole time I was there and he would, you know, we'd come into uh, I forget what we called it at, at Ithaca. It would be like studio hour. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? All the percussionists get together at noon on a Wednesday or something like that. Okay. He would come in and he'd be like, all right, here's something I've been messing around with. And he'd play this stuff for us. I remember distinctly, because I still have the, hand, the handwritten 
version of some of his stuff. He wrote these, they're called four episodes. Um, he was writing that while I was there. And then he was also writing his idiokinetic book at the time, mm. which is the blue cover. Yeah. So he was experimenting with us as he was writing that book. And I've got pages of that, the handwritten version before, before it got sent to, uh, before it got sent to the publisher. That is a book I highly recommend. So it's the, idi- I think the full title is something like idiomatic techniques for the marimba or something like that. It's a blue cover. I know originally it was published by like Michael Baker or M Baker. Um, if you go to Gordon's website, he may even control it now. Mm-hmm. He's, he's kind of taken on all of his stuff as much as he can. You know, he's, he got sick of, you know, having the publishers get all the all the all the money. But um great book, both from a two mallet. It's mostly a two mallet approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of this kind of getting around the the, the the instrument, muscle memory is kind of you know, the idiokinetic is the fancy term for for muscle memory. So it's all based around that. But there are certain exercises that I will use in that book from a four mallet standpoint also combining the double verticals with the independent rotation. So you could take the exact same exercise as a two mallet and then also as a four mallet. Yeah. So that's the long winded answer. So it was obviously heavy mallet oriented, but we got involved with, with, you know, a lot of aspects of it. We did have people. Now I like this about Gordon and I think Gordon got this from JB at Eastman because when I've spent some time, I've been fortunate enough to spend some time with JB on different situations and hearing from students that studied with J with, with, with John Beck, Gordon would not be like, you have to do A, B, C, D, and E. We had, there are two guys in particular. There was a guy who was a year ahead of me, who was a killer Afro-Cuban hand drummer. Mm-hmm. And, and he was all into, you know, into like the drum circle thing. And, and he would go accompany the dance classes and get paid. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he didn't care about four mallet technique. He didn't care. Or, or it wasn't that big of a deal to him. But he still, he graduated he got involved with everything, but he was allowed to really kind of dive into what he wanted to. And the dude's making a killer living in Manhattan. And this is all he does. And then there was another guy who was all about the fife and drum rope drum rudimental. And that son of a bitch is working at West point now. And this is all he does. And it's like, so you know, we'd see this guy in the practice rooms just wailing away on the practice pad and 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 he wasn't very strong in anything else. But Gordon was able to, you know, what I mean, he was he was able to work with him because I, I hear stories, you know, like when Stefan Harris was at Eastman with John Beck. I mean, Beck let him do what he wanted to do, you know. So I think for, for teachers out there, especially in the world of percussion, I mean, it's so huge. Yeah. I think it's important that, you know, yes, we can't ignore foundational concepts and, and important aspects of the percussion world, but everybody's different, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good, that's a really good lesson. Um, 
you had mentioned before you, we started talking about Gordon that you were already working with high schools. Was that you were like you were really interested in it, or did someone present you an opportunity? You're like, I'll give it a shot, and then you you just kind of picked up on it. No, I was really interested in it. And then it was my drumline instructor from my high school was also teaching or it had a connection with these other ones. So it was like I already had kind of my foot in the door. Mm-hmm. And there was one, I mean, literally 15 minutes away, small high school program. I kind of um, was that was my group. I mean, it was just me. And it was just me for the battery and just me for the front ensemble. And and then the other group I worked with was more of a, the assistant to my old high school teacher. But no, it's it's literally this. And this is something I talk about, and I'll even talk about it today. People that are involved with the any of the competitive art form, it's the closest thing in my life to me being officially part of a cult. It's a nice cult. It's a positive cult. Uh But you get in and you get bit by the bug. It is really hard to get out. This is why you have people in their 40s and 50s that are teaching DCI groups. Mm -hmm. This is why just about every single DCI, WGI, Bands of America judge used to teach and used to march. Yes. Because that, let's be honest, everybody still wants to march. So, you know, so for me, it was like you got that bug in high school and then I just kept it going. Now, there was not a marching band at Ithaca College. Yeah. Um, it was Division Three football. They had a little pet band that was run by one of the music fraternities. Um, all well and good. So I didn't have that opportunity, nor was I seeking it out. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't have that college marching band experience. Um, as a member, yeah, I was definitely interested in it. The money wasn't great, but the money was was fine. But that, as I connect the dots, then that led to teaching senior corps, which led to teaching, you know, open class division A, double A, DCI junior corps, which led to the cadets, which led to this, which led, you know, it's all connected. You know, ever since high school. I've been involved one way or the other with the activity. And I know I am not unique in that aspect whatsoever. How do you end up at Kent State? Because of Ted Rounds, who was the assistant at at, at Ithaca. So Michael Burrett was at Kent State. That was like his first real big gig. And that's when, you know, he he wrote Shadow Chasers while he was at Kent State. And he wrote, you know, some of those iconic early Burrett stuff. Yeah. Four movements. Oh, yeah. And um, and then Michael got the Northwestern gig. So Ted applied for the Kent gig, was a finalist, got the gig, picked up the phone, called me and offered me the graduate assistantship because he knew I was looking for a change. I did music business at Ithaca. The goal then was to work slash eventually own my own music store and get into the the business side of things, which I did out of Ithaca. I got a job like literally graduation week. I had a second interview for this this music store that was one of these mass service, you know, they're servicing a couple hundred high schools and they're rent you know, we're renting all of the beginning instruments in the school districts and we're selling the reeds and the drumsticks and the heads. All right. Well, that was me. 
So I did that immediately after Ithaca for close to three years. And it was a great experience. I would never trade it in for anything else because of the contacts that I made and the behind the scenes, how the music business world works. But I wanted to change. So Ted knew I was looking to kind of maybe go back to school. So boom, Ted gets the gig, contacts me. Um, so, so that's how I ended up at Kent and did the typical two year, got the graduate assistant, ran the drum line mm-hmm. at Kent, new connections. And it's, I noticed it's an MFA. Was that just that they didn't have it listed as a, a master of music or was it any different than a master's? It was a master's degree. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, it's been so long ago. Yeah, I don't even have we we recently did a remodeling. Uh-huh. I'm looking around for my. We recently did a remodeling. My whole office is trash. This is why. It's like this. But I'm looking for the actual. I got the 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 frame degrees somewhere. Yeah. I thought it was an MM, but maybe maybe it wasn't. Well, it's listed on the. On your web, the school website as MFA. That's why I asked. Okay. Yeah. It could be. I don't know. It's, yeah. but it's an MM. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Did you so like being in Ohio? It was, it was in performance. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Did and that's where the playing, that's where the playing really kicked up. I was never a super strong, I was straight ahead, middle of the road at Ithaca. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was competent, fine. Yeah. Um, Tiffany player for the top wind ensemble my senior year. Tommy Burrett was a year behind me I'm trying to think of the names. Tom Hassenflug mm. was a grad student when I was an undergrad, Tony Steve, who teaches down at Jacksonville state university. He was a grad student, um, Bill Fenizio, who's a freelance percussionist in New York city. He was a year ahead of me, had a nice, uh, Dave Gluck who used to do rhythm. He used to do Dallas brass forever. Mm. set player in rhythm and brass um he was two years ahead of me so i had a nice collection of of you know cohorts at ithaca so i was right in the middle of the road but when i got to grad school that's when the playing kind of kicked in that's when the yamaha artist thing started and when i started performing at day of percussions Traveling around, playing Merlin, playing Velocities. I was really into and still am today into the classical guitar literature with the arrangements and transcriptions of that. So that was the, you know, that and my period at Michigan State was when I actually played the most in a concentrated, you know, time time period. It's kind of like you were the, you were finally the guy or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we had an incredible court. There was me, two other grad students. My second year at Kent, there were two other grad students that came in that started their first year, my second year, both from Ithaca. Mm-hmm. So there was a nice little Ithaca pipeline because of Ted. Yeah. And then this guy named, and I'm saying this with a sm- smile on my face, this clown named Rob Ferguson was a six-year senior at Kent. And Rob Ferguson is the guy who created Matrix. Pindle. Yeah. So Rob, and so we created this graduate quartet. And we did Whole Toy Laid Down. We did the Levitan Quartet. Ted wrote two marimba quartets that 
people need to like if you reach out to Gordon, Gordon now has all of Ted's literature um in-house. Um, because when Ted passed away, that was one of the things that I took it upon myself to make sure this stuff is not getting lost. And then Gordon jumped on board with me. So he's got a, a marimba quartet that a lot of you out there are not familiar with called Bluebird Samba. There's the Levitan Marimba Quartet, and then there's Bluebird Samba. This thing is right there. Awesome. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, highly recommended. Then he's got a harder quartet, which I'm not even sure what the new name is because we used to just call it the African Quartet. But it's still it's, – it's got some unique name to it. Gordon has all that stuff. And Ted Rounds is one of those composers that a lot of people, you don't know about Ted's work unless you were one or two steps removed from Ted. Yeah. You know, um, and that was Ted's doing because he never officially got anything public. He self-published everything. Mm-hmm. So he would go to Kinko's and then people would send him a check and he'd mail him the thing. Yeah. And Steve Weiss would carry it, but you weren't, he didn't, he wasn't dealing with KP3. He wasn't dealing with, with C. Allen. Um, Tap Space wasn't even around yet. He just did it all in-house. All right. Well, if I finished with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Sure. First question is an issue in percussion education, percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. Everybody memorizing everything. Relying on memorization and not developing any sense of having the having the music in front of you and not having to put in umpteen hours to be able to get it performed. And we touched on this earlier a little bit. This sight reading skill is a lost art form. And I'm not talking about that you need to be as good as the studio players are in in Nashville or in L.A., Um, but you need to not rely on memorizing. And because if you think about it, nobody else in the musical world does, you know, your clarinet friends, your trumpet friends, your, you know, and I'm talking about ensemble literature. I'm not talking about solo literature. I mean, you get that, you get that xylophone part in wind ensemble with a bunch of the 60 note runs and you're just just trying to hide when the group is sight reading the thing. And then you spend all that time, you know, memorizing it. So that's a thing just as, and that's the thing I find all the time is just everybody with, within a lot of percussion circles is just relying on memorization. Um, That would be number one. Number two would be just playing with so much tension. Hmm. You know, this just very, and it's gotten a lot better though, but just this, you know, this very, you know, it's like, you can still keep that complete control of your approach, but it doesn't need to be, you know, I play drums now and just, you know, kind of thing. So I think those would be the two. Yeah. Is that, you, you feel like particularly in younger players that that tension is not as common as it once was? Um, yeah, no, it is, but you still, it's still out there though. And it's still out there within the mark, within the drumline situation, but it's used for a reason. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, the staccato stroke, the control, the uniformity, and, and I just see it too much 
being transferred from the football field to the back of concert band. So people, I call it the two different worlds, you know, yeah. and even my students here at the university, it's like, look, we're, we're in the, we're, we're on the football field world, but then we're here and we got to relax. You know what I mean? We don't, we don't need to piston stroke everything with a two mallet approach. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you know, like some, some people would, would in a, in a competitive art form standpoint, because there's a use for it. I get it. Mm-hmm. I don't hundred percent agree with it, but I get it. And it's valid. It's just, they need to be more relaxed. Do you use specific books like, you, like for other instruments to, to help with, or to continuously have lit for sight reading? The uh, Voxman duet books, the flute, this comes from Gordon. Yeah. The, the Voxman flute duet books, the Arbin's trumpet, the trumpet ATD, Bible, yeah. the thing yeah. that's like this thick. Yep. The red, um, the red, red Bible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, that I've used the Voxman clarinet duet books and forget about transposing it, just play it. Mm-hmm. Anything in duets is good because you want to do it with somebody else because when you screw up, they aren't stopping. Yeah. So that's important. But even if you're on your own, it's like you got to sight read with a Met because it's a skill for that quick recovery. That's something else you're developing, you know, and that was something, you know, I talked about earlier with the whole freshman year at Ithaca being like, you know, I just was so used to stopping anytime I made a mistake. And then you get used to, oh, yeah, I screwed up that eighth note worth of stuff. Fine. But. I didn't screw up three and a half beats worth of stuff, which is what happens when, you know, you just stop and then everybody else, you know, the train keeps moving without you. So, yeah. And then I'll, I'll tell my students is just grab anything. Somebody left the violin two part on the music stand and just throw it, you know, think of those 16 notes as eighth notes, you know, do it slow enough. So you don't want to just kind of crash and burn, but it's just the concept of volume, like seeing stuff you've never seen before, first time, ready, set, go, and then you never touch it again. You know what I mean? So it's just anything you come across. You come across a piano book, just read the treble clef, just read the bass clef. You know, we aren't sitting there expecting you to read, to sight read, you know, the full staff. Yeah. But um, just notes on the page. And then this was a Ted Rounds thing. If you want to sight read for mallet literature, mm-hmm. it's church hymnals. Yeah. Because it's all four parts. It'll have two parts. Normally, it's two parts in the treble, two parts in the bass. Yeah. And it, you don't need to go, you know, one, two, three. Bum bum, you can go bum 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 two 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 three 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 and four bum bum. You know, just to kind of get that brain to help out. But see, Ted spent so much time with his sight reading, and Gordon did too, by the way, but that Ted would just be able to just sight read those hymnals right down. For those of you that have seen Gordon perform live, nine times out of ten, he's got the music in front of him. Mm-hmm. Um, unless it's like, you know, the two Mexican dances or stuff that he's played a bazillion times. But he's always been mind-blowing from a standpoint of his own muscle memory and his own peripheral vision where 
he just plays the snot out of something while looking at the music most of the time. And I think it started with him because he was, you know, growing up, he was a pianist. Mm-hmm. And that just he just took that and just rolled it right into, you know, the early xylophone, early marimba stuff he did when he was growing up in Michigan. You know, like the workshops I do, I just got back from Texas and did, you know, university, one of the universities down in Texas. And then the workshop, most of the time we talked about sight reading and I and I put the students like behind the instruments mm-hmm. and I take them through these steps the, the concepts were introduced to me by Gordon, but I've kind of elaborated and kind of created my own approach to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get asked about this all the time. Um, when, when the method book, the four mallet method book came out, every single clinic I did for like six, seven years was all based on the book. It's all expansion of the book. Then after the, the, the wave of the of the interest in the book, although the book still sells great, it's awesome. But yeah. um, then everything shifted to my sight reading thing because people got wind of what I was doing sight reading wise. Right, let's get to some other questions. More not as not percussion based, but uh, yeah. has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Um, I don't know about nailed, but we have at the, at the university here during band camp to lighten things up, you know, we got the, the theme days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, and I always leave it up to the drum majors to come up with the theme. So a couple years ago, one of them came up with the theme, like dress like Dr. H day. Not everybody participates in these themed things, but a bunch of them would. And during, and I am a, during band camp or even during the nice weather day, I am like a Hawaiian shirt, cabana, button down guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I'm outside, I'm a big, I don't have, do I have one in here? I usually have one in the office, but they're all in the car. I'm yeah. one of these big brim hat guys. Yeah. So, so yeah, so we've got, that would be the visual impression. I really, to my knowledge, Although I'm sure out there people, especially with all the judging tapes I've done over the years, Lord knows, you know, what people have done. But I'm sure there are people that have um, that have tried to imitate the voice. But I think just from a, a look standpoint, it's the current, the marching band students here have done that. Uh, next question. Uh, what's the most impractical, speaking of clothing, what's the most impractical item of clothing you have? Just from a standpoint that I hardly ever use them is I do own, but because they're kind of they're hand me downs, I do own a couple of couple of large trench coats. Oh, but see, I don't wear sport coats for hardly anything. So it's you know, so I it's not that situation that I have a suit on and then I got to put a jacket on top of the suit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's just from an impress. Just from a standpoint, like I hardly ever wear them, but I have a couple. I'm a shorts guy when it's hot. I'm a I'm a jeans guy. I'm a khakis guy. My wife will make fun of the corduroys that I'll wear every now and then when it's like insanely cold. You know, I'm a sweater guy. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked that one before. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, next one. What's your biggest kitchen mess up? I cook a lot, by the way. I'm the one that does most of the cooking and it was the same way my dad growing up would do the big meals 
mm-hmm. like Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, the big Super Bowl party kind of thing. My mom was the everyday mm-hmm. cook. So I kind of grew up with, you know, dad in the kitchen. So the biggest kitchen screw up, I'm sure just severely, um, you know, forgot that I put something in the oven and just burned, you know, just burned it to a crisp. I uh, never had a kitchen fire per se, knock on wood, yeah. like had the big oil fire or something like that. So I haven't gone that far, but I'm sure just kind of forgetting that something's, you know, something's in the oven. And then, you, of course, I just get get sidetracked. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that would be the biggest screw up. Gotcha. Do you have a specialty, something you make for, for guests or that kind of thing? Um, my go-to is Mexican food. Now, now I'm not going to say it's authentic, but I love experimenting. I mean, I'm one of those people that will just open up the, you know, open the kit, open the refrigerator up, open the cabinets up and see what we got and just make it work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, I will say this, when I do that, it's mostly just for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Okay. So it's like, Starting, you know, the combination of ingredients in the salsa. Now, I'm not starting fresh. I'm not chopping up like tomatoes and that kind of thing. But I'm starting with a decent canned, and I know some people are out there cringing on me, a decent bottled salsa, but then elaborate and add to it, you Mm -hmm. know, and I can go a whole bunch of different ways. So I guess my go-to would be, like we call it like the chicken pepper kind of dish where it's like, you know, chicken breasts, I slice it up, you know, red pepper, orange pepper, yellow pepper, don't like green pepper. Um, so any of those, julienne, I'll cut those up, julienne them up, throw them in the pan, concoction with the different salsa, um, and just have this massive skillet where you can either, you can take that massive stuff put it on tortilla chips put it into flour you know make it like a you know chicken soft taco kind of vibe that's kind of my go-to i'm also a big fan of turkey tacos yeah not the and again nothing against ground beef but um the turkey tacos but again elaborating quick side note on cooking during covid Mm-hmm. During the severe lockdown, I was the one that would always go to the grocery store. So it was just it would just be me. So just to play it safe, although I don't mind going to the grocery store. I got myself into this habit of buying the pre-cooked like pizza crust. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. the pizza dough that you'd right. roll out and okay, just they're already done. Like Boboli is a brand name mm-hmm. that's kind of somewhat popular, but they have these thin crust already pre-cooked so that turned into two maybe three times a week just for me Mm -hmm. and the uh the amount of different approaches that i would do and i would it got to the point i take pictures of the results the before and afters nice i mean every possible cheese you could think of Uh goat cheese feta cheese blue cheese cheddar mozzarella provolone not all at the same time don't worry but an assortment of that all different kind of vegetables and every single one was different and i would be the only one that would eat it (laughs) because the other family members 
don't like the, you know, the unique assortment of stuff. They like a more just keep it simple, stupid kind of thing. But for me, it was a great way, and I'm not kidding here, to kill two hours preparing because I would slice up the fresh pepper, cook the pepper, Mm -hmm. um, grill the pepper, cook it, then do the onions. So then put that aside and then, you know, figure out what, you know, how, what I wanted to do. I would, I would never use pizza sauce. I would use spaghetti sauce, but different kinds of decent jarred spaghetti sauce, but then add to it. Yeah. So yeah, it would be a project, but a project on purpose. Do, are you, do, are you a big spices person? Not super, super spicy, but it doesn't. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I meant, I meant like you have an assortment of spices. Yeah, I got, but it's not a big, no, I, okay. it's, it's like, like four or five. Okay. Yeah. Like I'm really into the, the, the rub, like you go to a barbecue place and they got like, here's the dry rub, mm-hmm. you know, and that, but see, I'll use that in situations that you aren't supposed to, you know, I'll mix it in with other stuff, but yeah. those kind of things like a garlic powder, like fresh garlic, or the easier thing is the canned garlic where they've already, you know, kind of diced it up for you, just throw it in the pan. I'm not a super hot, spicy. Now, I'll I'll take it up a notch, but I won't go crazy with it. You know, I have friends that grow their own, you know, Carolina Reaper peppers and that kind of stuff. It's like, no, thanks. You know? Nice. Yeah. All right. What is a favorite book? Uh, Stephen King, anything. Oh. Oh, hands down. Forget it. Like, like you notice how quick I answered that. Uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, Dark Tower series and The Stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for me, those are the two that jump out. But I have read just about everything. With that um, is very impressive because he has written a lot. Oh, a ton. And you know how they talk about the Marvel universe where they, they you know, people, they have the posters and everything is connected. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people don't realize that son of a bitch, every single one of his books relates to the other ones. Mm. It, there's a Stephen King universe and he'll bring up one sentence in one book. That relates to something else. And it'll go over the heads of most people. But he throws these little nuggets in there for his true diehard fans. And I've had great conversations with, you know, and and again, not to call her out, but, you know, Mark Thurston, who runs the WGI Percussion stuff, his wife, Marcy, she's a diehard Stephen King fan. So we talk about it all the time. Yeah. So, like, one of my favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption, and that's based on a Stephen King short story. Yeah, anything to do with Stephen King. I've read a lot of the James Patterson stuff just because they're quick, easy reads. Yeah. Um, Also someone who has a ton of books. (laughs) Oh, you think? But let's be honest, though. I would say in the last 15 to 20 years – he it's somebody else yeah, with right. him yep. and you really don't know how much time he's involved. I mean, people yep. are just riding on his coattails, rightfully so. Yes. But yeah, you, <laughs> I would do you that. Go back to that earlier stuff. Yeah. He's got those series, you know, where it's all the, it's like the, what is it? The murders club, the ladies murders club yeah. or something, you know, book one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then yeah. he's got the one about, he's got those couple of the Tamil club, I think is one of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's he he's phenomenal. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think the other 
Um, you know, Stuart Woods is another one that's similar, it's similar vein as um, Patterson with that whole detective thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Stone Barrington is a character that Stuart Woods writes about in a bunch of his books. He's a he's a detective um, kind of private investigator kind of type. I'm, I'm I should be into more nonfiction stuff, but I'm not. And but I should be. Um <laughs> But I don't read. I'll be honest. I mean, I don't read nearly as much as I used to. With all the traveling I do, and and you know, driving to gigs, I'm I've you know all in on the audiobook thing, yeah. all in. You know what? The one I'm just finishing up right now, which has been fascinating, is, and of course, I'm horrible with names, so I, you can help me out here. But Chandler Bing from Friends, that actor, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Matthew Perry. Matthew Perry did like an audio, an audio, you know, a biography. And yeah. I knew he had some drug issues, you know, because it, you know, through filming and all that, but I didn't know to the severity of it. And yeah. he doesn't hide anything. Yeah. And it's like the dude was almost dead two or three times while filming Friends, not after Friends. It's like, what the H? Yeah. yeah. So um, that's, that's the one I'm just, just about to wrap up on. Gotcha. Yeah. Why now you go back to Dark Tower because I've had a number of people have mentioned that. Why is that why is that that always is like one of the first ones that people mention with Stephen King? Why is that? It's a brilliant story. Do not watch any of the uh, any of the movie adaptations because they all screw it up. If somebody wants to do it right, that needs to be like a five season you know Hulu, Netflix, Amazon series. Because it's seven books, yeah. and it's obviously one storyline. It's following one main character. It's amazing the the different worlds. There's mm-hmm. kind of like a little time travel kind of vibe that's thrown in. But again, he references his other books are embedded. And then the brilliance of Stephen King is he writes book one, two, three, and four. So it's like, okay, he strings those around and then he just steps away from the story, but he didn't finish the story and everybody knows this. So then he gets hit by a car in real life. He gets hit by a car and almost dies. And when he gets out of the hospital, he writes five, six and seven right away Uh, because the fan base loses their mind, literally. Not the fact that he almost died. The fact that, wait, you didn't finish the Dark Tower story. (laughs) He writes the last three books, and the son of a bitch puts in the book him getting hit by a car. Like him himself with this time travel thing. So it's it's just the the brilliance of it all. Yeah. Um, But it's such a great story and there are twists and turns at the end of the seventh book the seventh book which some of us think are beyond brilliant which is the camp that i'm in and then some people are livid at the end of it all um but i'm not going to ruin anything but it's highly highly recommended um books one two and three quick reads so it's literally book one Book two, book three, book yeah. four. Four is huge, yeah. Book five, six, and seven. Gotcha. Yeah. 
But man, is it cool. And sure enough, I mean, there are probably 30 to 40 references of other stories intertwined within those seven books, as in other books. Yeah. Um, the guy's just brilliant. Yeah. Last question, Gif. What one piece of art could be anything, music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, anything has impacted you the most recently? My daughter and I were down at the Smithsonian in D.C. just before COVID. She's all into art. Not like she's going to do it for a living, but she's really into visual art and a lot of the contemporary stuff. So we went to the contemporary, you know, American, whatever it's called. And they had a Jason Pollock there. An original Jason Pollock. Jackson Pollock? Jackson, sorry. There you go. See, me with the names. Notice how <laughs> I keep bringing this up. Okay. So Jackson Pollock. Now, saw the movie. I yeah, know yeah. some of the backstory about him. He's one of those artists. And it's, again, let's be honest, this is kind of common where the brilliancy on one part of their brain surpasses the rest of the world, but the other part of the brain, we've got issues. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Kind of like they talk about that with Steve Jobs. It's like yeah. just brilliant, but the personal life was a little rough. Okay. So seeing this, and this wasn't like a full, this was like a, I would say maybe a six by four or a five by three foot size thing of his. Well, that's smaller for his. I know. See, that's what I was saying. This wasn't yeah. one of these ginormous things. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it it was it was just standing there looking at it. That was that that was rem, you know memorable. It took me a while to buy in because I was I wasn't buying Hamilton when it first came out. Mm. I wasn't into it, and it took me a while. And actually, saw it one of the never saw it on Broadway. One of the early touring acts saw it in Cleveland. Um, saw it live. And I was like, okay, this is a little better, but still not all in yet. To me, it was one of those that it just had to grow on me. Mm. And my daughter was addicted to it for a while. And now I should say this. I think right out of the gate, the lyrics and his use with the rhyming and the words, and I totally appreciate that mixing of the genre, you know, let's be honest, Mm. brilliant. The music didn't catch me at all to start with. Mm-hmm. But but it took a while, and now some of that is like, okay, this is this is beyond brilliant. Mm-hmm. But and I know some people right out of the gate just drank the Kool Aid instantly on it, and you know I get it, and it's great. But for some reason, it took me a while. I'll I'll put in the soundtrack, you know, every now and then, every now and then, uh, and there are you know certain aspects of it. I love the King. You know, you'll be back. The whole the, the, the oh yeah, yes, of course. Right, the one dude. The very it's very thin. There's not a lot going on, right. but it's brilliant. Yeah, um, and I've had interesting, humorous conversations with good friends where I will purposely just piss them off and make fun mm-hmm. of Hamilton, even though I, I I really appreciate it. But I just I just love to goof with people. Um, and Hamilton's one of those. So Hamilton kind of pops out as somewhat recent, but again, it's, it's not that recent. See, there should be something that kind of, that strikes a nerve. 
I will say this, and I don't think we talked about this before. There have been, or maybe we did. I've shared this with you know my workshops, and especially when I go in and and I'm in a I'm, I'm in a school that competes, or I'm at a university where there's a lot of people that are involved in the competitive arts. There is that emotional hook, right? So you get that as a performer, you get that as a teacher, you get that. I get it as a judge. Yeah. Every now and then. So mm. did we talk about this the first go around? Okay. It's happened to me twice mm. in all the years of judging with all the different, you know, local circuits, national circuits, been fortunate enough to judge in Asia, judge in Europe twice where I've had to stop talking because I got choked up because mm. of the emotion that was coming off the floor or the, just the fact that, you know, I knew what was coming because I had already experienced it before and kind of got caught up in the moment. Mm-hmm. So that's memorable. But this is going back a ways. But sure, it, no, it's fine. it is Don't interesting it. twice. Yeah. High school group, mm-hmm. independent world group. Yeah. That's it. And um, I don't want to get into the details because it'll, it'll piss people off. But I've shared this with the people involved with the group. They know there was with the the first one was a high school group. And I was, you know, I wasn't at the time was not really good friends with the director, but I am now. And we're going back like 15 years here. Yeah, yeah. And we ran into each other after the show and he had already listened to my recording mm-hmm. and neither of us said a word. Mm. And we came up to each other and just hugged it out. Mm. And, and, you know, they weren't even competitive that year. Yeah. So it wasn't like they won. It was the kids knew that for them, it finally clicked. And it yeah. was the last performance of the year for them. Yeah. And it freaking finally clicked. And there was not one dry eye on the floor. They were all in tears. They were all losing it for like the last 45 seconds of the performance. And I got, and I got sucked in and I'm like, okay, I'm out. I mean, so I was just silent until they were done. And then I finally was able to compose myself and just kind of do a congrats on a great year. And that this is what it's all about. And this is why we do this. And, you know, people too much. And I know I'm going to piss off people by making this statement, but you know, it's not all about winning. It's those experiences. It's like even the middle of the road, middle of, you know, country USA marching band where the kids finally are like, man, that was the best we've ever done, you know, and they're coming off the field and they're, and and they're in tears. Yeah. That's what it's all about. You know, and it's that it's that strong emotional hook that's involved with anything to do with music. But there is something unique with that that journey that takes place, you know, you know, eight months earlier when you got the music and then you put it on the field or on the floor and then, oh, my God, it's rough and we're surviving and there's no bloodshed. And then all of a sudden, man, that was kind of cool. And holy crap, the audience stood up. You know what I mean? 
And it's like, you came in fourth place. The kids will never forget fourth place. The students will never forget with the score of 91.3. They don't remember that. Right. They remember what it felt like coming off, coming off the, uh, off the field or off the floor. And then I'll share one more story that's similar to this. Now this was recent. This was just before COVID at Band of America National, you know, Grand Nats. I never judge the finals weekend because I'm always involved with with PASIC. But so I was there, semifinals, watching the show. Mm-hmm. And I, after semifinals, which ends in like middle of the afternoon because finals are that night. So they put a big gap in there. And I'm at, I'm at a, an adult establishment, you know, drinking, just yeah. to be clear. Okay. So I'm there with, you know, a couple buddies of mine. And to my left is a collection of six band parents all decked out with the big bat. You know, they got the big, here's my, my student picture, right? Okay. That from a group that has won Grand Nationals before and every year they go to Indianapolis, they are a finalist. There's no questions asked. And there to my left, to my right, is a collection of about 12 band parents with a group that's right on the bubble. Yeah. And the results come out. Like they just left the dome where they give the rundown. And here are the finalists for tonight. So the group to my right knows they didn't make it. Mm. Group to my left left home earlier in the week knowing the odds are they're going to make it. You know what I mean? So we're talking about two totally different kind of experiences. Okay. The band parents to my right were not happy they weren't pissed but you could tell they were kind of and they're you know drinking and everything and i'm talking to the two buddies of mine and i'm like you know what i'm gonna go over and talk to them and they're like dude you shouldn't and i said yeah i'm gonna <laughs> and i i had no interest in going to my left mm-hmm. none whatsoever because right. they you know they know. i wanted to go over to the one on my right and i could tell as i walked over that there was this super tall six foot six dad who was the alpha parent. You know what I mean? So here's 12 of them, but here's the alpha parent. And I walk up and he noticed me walking up to them. And I said the school name. I said, so you guys are from, you know, Main Street High School, right? You know, which of course, that's a made up name. And they, of course, all, it's like, it's on there. Like you're just right. Reading. That too. But, yeah. but I, yeah, you, you knew. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And they all, the, the, the necks all snap and they all turn at me, but my eye contact was with the six foot six guy. Yeah. And I said, okay, before I say anything, I want you to know that I am not working this weekend. Cause I wanted to preface it. I yeah. said, I said, I'm not working this weekend, but I'm a bands of America music judge. So of course their interest goes up. And I told them, I said, look, your kids will Never forget the experience of coming off that field to a standing ovation and the place losing their mind because they did, because I was in the building watching them perform, said they will never, ever forget that. They don't care that they didn't make finals. You care, but they don't. And the six foot six guy looked at me and he goes, you know what? You're right. 
because we just left the buses where the kids were packing everything up and they were all skipping around, goofing on each other, you know, doing whatever. They don't care. But they will never forget that experience. Yeah. And I'm glad I did it. And I've shared that story, you know, a couple dozen times before. And you got to realize that's what it's all about. Obviously, winning is great. And that is the goal. And that is the sense of, you know, building this journey to perfection. Mm -hmm. It's important. But it's all about those moments. And, and, you know, the, the kids and BOA does a great job of making it all about the kids. You know, they really go out of their way. They really kind of, you know, that's been their their motto forever. And, you know, those kids, will they don't forget those experiences. Yeah. So it's important. Yeah. So there you go. What a blast having GIF on the show. I greatly appreciate his time and good cheer and great stories throughout. I look forward to connecting with him again in the future, hopefully very soon. Thanks again, Gifford. This week's rave is the 2023 documentary series Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning, co-produced by the Boston Globe, directed by Jason Hahir, and currently streaming on HBO Max. Jason Hahir was a person I was relatively familiar with through his sports documentaries. He's been involved with many episodes of the 30 for 30 ESPN film series and some other films, but is probably best known for directing The Last Dance, the 10-part documentary series on Michael Jordan that premiered during the pandemic in 2020. This time around, Jason Hahir puts his focus on the murder of Carol Stewart that occurred in 1989 in Boston and the circumstances that surrounded her death. When her body was discovered, Her husband, who was also injured, told police that the murder was done by a black person, and chaos ensued. One of the great things that the director does in this, and he does with his previous work, is to take the long view and set the scene. In part one of this series, which I thought was the best one, the roots of race relations in Boston's past is explored, featuring lots of interviews with folks from the African-American Mission Hill District in Boston, and a lot about why Boston has been such a cauldron for racial animosity for a long time, and the ways that all of that played into this particular case. The final two parts look at the case specifically and how the murder investigation unravels and morphs from that original point. All I want to add here, without giving away too much, is that this is an incredibly riveting watch. It's incredibly well-made with great interviews, both recent and archived, and it is infuriating, exasperating, and hopefully comes to a good, somewhat good conclusion. I can't recommend it enough. So with that, go see Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning, now streaming on Max. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts 
and please leave a comment and a rating. You can find every episode of the show and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Spotify, many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and X at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And we'll be back next week for our final interview from those who presented at PASIC 2023. Until then.